The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 30 of The Ascent of Board Games. We're back and ready to babble about games and stuff, because that's sort of what we do. This month, we're going to talk about games that have a changing board. So during the course of the game, the actual physical map or grid of the board gets modified and often wrecks your carefully laid plans. We acknowledge that legacy games frequently have changes to the board, but we're also not going to include those because that's not really what we're talking about. And legacy games are their own whole thing. Which we did an episode on, which you should listen to. I was going to say, we have covered those in in great detail. Turns out we like legacy games a lot. They're so good. But they do have quite a bit of board changing. So, like, they would qualify here pretty well. Yes. Except that we've talked about them a lot. Yes. And it turns out we have a lot of things to talk about today. More than I expected, certainly. Yeah, definitely. The weird thing is a bunch of kids' games crept in and a bunch of really old games which means I get to talk way too much. Well, <laughs> Frank, that's the nature of having you on the podcast, is we always get a bunch of old games, and frankly, often kids' games as well. But that's fine. That's one of the reasons we brought you here. That and the fact that literally any game anyone can mention, you'll be, oh, I have that, or I have had that, or I've played that, or I had one of the two original playtest copies in Lithuanian, or whatever it might be. <laughs> I've only got the one Lithuanian game. Come on. Well, I'm sorry, I haven't finished excavating your game catacombs yet. You own one original print Lithuanian game, and suddenly you never stop hearing about it. Yep. Yeah, I need to get some help translating that so I can actually play it. So if we have any listeners who speak or read Lithuanian, let us know in the comments. But for now, Frank, why don't you tell us about some of the earliest changing board games that we know about? The first game just kind of stood out. It's called Stay Alive, 1965. I'm pretty sure it was Ideal Top Games, signed by Gordon A. Barlow. And if you know anything about this game, you know the commercial. And the words, I'm the sole survivor, will mean something to you. Can we talk about that commercial for a second? Because (laughs) that director just gave the directions to this kid. All right, stare directly into the camera with a thousand-yard stare. And as you say the line, it dawns on you that everyone you love is dead. Can we? Ch- I think that might have been Stanley Kubrick that directed that commercial. <laughs> you know, did about 75 takes over the course of three days. He had to break the kid had down. the kid worn down, exactly. <laughs> the kids are still in therapy. Yeah, I, I, mean, that, I, I watched it, and that kid is traumatized <laughs> as he delivers that line. Well, I think the implication is that the kids are trapped on an island, and I think that kid ate the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, you, you are the sole survivor because you murder each other person as you defeat them. It was an early Hunger Games prototype. (laughs) Which is weird because it's a silly little abstract game presented as the ultimate survival game. (laughs) Basically, you have a bunch of marbles that cover a board and you have two layers of levers. Each of those levers has three positions and basically they're a bunch of holes. When holes line up, marbles go drop and just sink into the board, never to be seen again. Much like those children. (laughs) Yeah, totally. The object's just to have the last marble alive. 
So, I mean, it's a vicious game. I mean, this also came out in the time before like graphic design, so it does look as bland as what Frank just described. Like, there is just no theming here other well, than the name. It is a very 60s look, to be clear. That sort of teal plastic, mm-hmm. very angular, very contemporary, as they say. The other thing is, as I recall, you don't really know where the holes are. So you're just kind of pulling a lever and hoping something cool happens? The holes can be hidden by the edge of the board or, of course, under parts because you can't see the bottom layer if there's a solid space on the top layer. So you don't quite know. You can gradually learn and get some idea and memorize, but it's hard because there's way too much stuff going on. Yeah. Do you really want to spend that much energy memorizing this game? I mean, it was 1965. What else did you have to do? Although I did kind of memorize some of the patterns. (laughs) Just being me. Oh, Frank. Frank. doesn't yeah, surprise me at all. Frank is that kid, and also, every yeah. time he finished playing, he would look up and just say, I am the sole survivor. You know, I, now I really <laughs> want to take the audio of that commercial and recut it to footage from, like, the deer hunter. <laughs> Moving on, please. <laughs> yeah, good point. To uh, another incredibly vicious 60s game, Switchboard, designed by Carlton B. Wilder. Published by Watkins Strathmore, better known for a, a Whitman. Whitman published a ton of pretty amazing abstract games in the 60s. It's worth looking at some of their stuff. Switchboard is a goose game. This takes place on a 6x6 grid of tiles. You have a start and a finish. You have an amazing amount of a variation. You have some spaces that make you lose a turn. And you have some spaces that give you an extra move. Ooh. Ah. But you roll two dice to move, and every time you roll a die, you get to pick up one of the two matching tiles and move it somewhere. So what happens with the board is gradually it just fragments, moves apart into this kind of giant maze of fragmented tiles going every which way, to where at some points it may be impossible to get to the finish line. (laughs) So great. It's a... Changeable board game where you can actually destroy the game as you play. Yeah, pretty much. There's no rules about, you know, keeping the tiles together or anything that you (laughs) might see in a modern game. I think in a couple of the games we played as a kid, we would end up taking up like a four by eight space, you know, with one tile that's just all the way at the end of the room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're just putting you next to that piece over there. (laughs) Even in the early days, Frank was pushing the envelope. But yeah, it's a cute game. Again, very moving. (laughs) See what you did there. And I think our next game in oh, the... Real quick, Frank, did you ever run across the... I just found this in the board game Geek Images, the Hey Culligan Man... Hey Culligan Man! ...version of this game. Oh, God. No. <laughs> yeah, look at the images. This is crazy. Apparently it was a promo item that they sold uh, of this game, and, like, it's themed with the Culligan Man, like the water delivery service. <laughs> Got spots of hard water and soft water. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, that's great. It must go for a fortune. <laughs> I want one. <laughs> we need to set up an episode that is just like weird commercial tie-in games. I mean, this has got to be up there. <laughs> you mean like Linfittich Settlers? Sure. I'm in. Yeah, totally. Did it come with a bottle? Yep. <laughs> Do you have it? Mine had the bottle removed because they shipped it. Boo. Didn't want to risk customs. It was like an airport bottle of Linfittich. Oh, well. All right, fine. But as far as licensed games, our next game is The Haunted Mansion Game from 1974, Ah, published by Lakeside. It's based on an original game by Toll Toys and Dennis Fisher from 1972 called Ghost Train. 
ghost train is like the British term for dark ride. Mm-hmm. Going in the haunted house, riding your little rides and being scared by ghosts. The Haunted Mansion game takes place on a giant grid of gears. As you move, you're instructed to turn the gears, which change the layout of the board. Plus, there are on the gears some big, almost like standees that are representations of the various Haunted Mansion ghosts. I think I remember one of the Viking helmet, you know, woman. From the, the opera singer, yeah. Yeah, totally. And those will turn and sweep and knock you off the board. Which, of course, means you go back to start because this was the 1970s. It's that kind of game, yeah. <laughs> the gears were plastic with cardboard inserts, and they turned really freely. And they're all interlocking. I'll put some pictures up in the show notes. It's really interesting because it's like, I'm going to turn this because it gets me where I want to go, but it's going to also swing around something halfway across the board that you're going to have to sort of go in and predictions. If this is clockwise, this goes counterclockwise, so this will go clockwise and figure out what's going to happen. And even our copy from 1972 with a sunken in kind of warped board spun really well. And it's even got a little spider over the uh, (laughs) tunnel that you leave from. (laughs) They will stop you (laughs) just in case you thought you were about to win. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because like you don't see game construction like this anymore. No. Which is a shame. But on the other hand, this game didn't have 800 miniatures. Sure, you only got four Doom buggies. And there oh. were no expansions. But yeah, if you have a copy of the Haunted Mansion game, sell it to me. <laughs> they, they, go, they do go for a... Frank will pay you big not bucks. That Frank big is bucks. buying. Not that big of bucks. <laughs> but the game does go for a fortune. I mean, you're looking at boards of 300, 400 bucks. Well, when you get a combination of the old board game and Disney nostalgia. Oh, yeah. And Haunted Mansion nostalgia. Particularly, yeah. Let's see, last on our little nostalgia trip is a game that is kind of a personal favorite, especially from that time period, 1975's Sinking of the Titanic by Milton Bradley. Kind of a weird game. It takes place in two phases. Phase one is a pickup and deliver where you have a passenger and you have to run around the ship and pick them up. Phase two is a resource gathering where you have to run around between islands and try to keep passengers you picked up in phase one alive while waiting for the rescue ship to show up. And the person who actually has the most passengers on board that they can also pick up in the water and on the islands wins. The shrinking board really happens in the first phase where the entire ship is on a kind of a little pivot. And whenever you roll a one, the ship sinks a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at pictures on the Geek. There's another board, the water board that kind of slides up over yeah, it. So basically, it's a two-piece. You've got the big ocean board, and then you've got a sky board. And then the shipboard kind of sandwiches between those on a pivot, and you just kind of let it sink below the water. <laughs> it just it kills off passengers. Of course. And there's little dots on every space. Once a dot goes below the water, person's dead. And the lifeboats are launched when they touch the water because they're on the top of the boat. Uh, so you got to get that people up into that disturbing. Like surprisingly disturbing. Yeah, I know. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the artwork is pretty simple, and yet. But all yeah, those people you'll occasionally die. have someone you can't get to. Just like, oh no, I can't get to them. Maybe I can get another person or just <laughs> go to the lifeboats now. <laughs> it really is reminiscent of like the drawn pictures of the Titanic sinking into the water. It's kind of disturbing. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of disappointed they didn't do a licensed version of this after the movie came out. Because <laughs> I feel like it would have been a big hit. Yeah. You know, you get an extra 10 bonus points if you rescue Jack. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, I'm looking at the cards for the uh, the second half of the game. There's a whole bunch of cards with cannibals in them, Frank. Yes, oh. yes, there are. Because we all know that the North Sea, there were cannibals. <laughs> the North <or> Atlantic. <laughs> yep. This is not the, the only time that we're going to see that kind of changing board in two phases, so we will revisit that mechanic a little bit later. Ooh, foreshadowing. It kind of makes sense from a mechanic standpoint that, like, hey, once the thing in the first half of the game happens, you're now just playing a different game. I kind of dig that as a changing board mechanic, especially for the, when did we say this was? 1970s? 1975, yeah. Uh, the weird thing, though, is the second half of the game just doesn't make sense. I mean, it completely divorces <laughs> itself from whatever the heck was going on with Titanic. I mean, the whole South Sea visiting islands, picking up breadfruit. Yeah. Avoiding cannibals. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how much of this was somebody designing a game and then taking it to a publisher and they're like, what if? The board itself is pretty simplistic, but the box art itself is, it just reminds me of how much I love these painted board game box covers. Like, it is truly an epic shot here of people madly rowing away from the sinking Titanic while a, apparently a rescue ship less than a mile away is just watching them. <laughs> I mean, they should just go to the rescue ship to not encounter the cannibals, honestly. That seems better, yeah. <laughs> No, maybe the rescue ship is full of cannibals. On the box, it literally <laughs> says, the game you play as a ship goes down, then face the perils of the open sea. Right? Like, it's literally telling you on the box, like, hey, this is kind of two games. And it's only going to get worse for you. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made more sense of, like, hey... Why not then have to face the open sea to get to a rescue ship? Why are you going to a bunch of islands? Why are there cannibals involved? You know, I feel like today, first of all, this would have been like a separate expansion. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you guys just see that they came out with the cannibals expansion, the sinking of the Titanic? The cannibal minis are excellent. Oh, yeah. yeah. That game has jumped the shark. I prefer the base game, thank you. You know, they should reintroduce this as a Magic Maze-esque thing where the Titanic sinks automatically via some mechanism, and you're all playing like a Magic Maze-esque game on the Titanic as it's sinking. It oh sinks my in God. real time. Was... Yep. Oh, right, man. Stronghold, get on it. Or restoration. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the 80s, we now get to talk about some games that some of us other than Frank have heard of, and in some cases even played. Beginning with... Survive, later redone as Survive Escape from Atlantis, 1982 by Parker Brothers, designed by Julian Cortland Smith. The Atlantis title certainly makes a lot more sense than just Survive. Basically, you have an island full of hex tiles, you know, and you have a bunch of people on this island. Each turn, you were trying to get your people from the island onto the boats and then get the boats off to nearby islands because the main island is sinking and every turn, hexes go away. And if you're on those, you're floating in the water. You can swim and you can get rescued by a boat. You can also have to deal with sharks and sea serpents and occasionally friendly whales. Oh, wait, sorry. No, whales are still a pain in the ass. I it was, was the dolphins say, that came in the expansion that are friendly. Whales are jerks. Dolphins are cool. I mean, it makes sense. I don't know if y'all have been following the news, but there is a bunch of kayakers that literally just got eaten by some whales or a whale and then spit out again. They're fine. <laughs> Otherwise, this would be tragic. But so this game is, I think, the first changing board game I've ever played. And it was another one of those ones that really introduced me to the concept of like, oh, yeah, games have moved beyond just like Monopoly, because this one is really clever and really fun to play and really well themed, especially with the Atlantis theming, which is the one I've played. 
Yeah, the the theme is really strong. Um, this one, Stronghold, kickstarted basically a reprint remake of this a few years back, and it's a really nice production, as most of theirs are. So that's probably the one that most folks are familiar with. You get these lovely little wooden boats going back and forth and various monster meeples. It's just a fun game. There is one production that's Waddington's from 1994 that comes in one of those big oversized boxes. All the bits are plastic with uh, fully sculpted people, great sculpts on the monsters, and all the hexes are plastic. Yeah, you and can in find multiple that levels. one on the geek, and it looks beautiful. That's the one I have. <laughs> because, you know, me. Yes. So is this then the first game in this list where you take a quote-unquote bad guy turn? Ooh. Is this the first bad things happen phase? I don't know. Well, certainly yeah. in this list, I think it is. In this list, yeah. I don't know if across uh, well, the universe the bad thing I happens. I don't know. Uh, Sinking of the Titanic did that. That was just when you rolled a one. It wasn't like every turn something right. horrible happened. Huh. It also starts a long and healthy tradition of removing hex tiles from the board, which... Again, we are going to talk about in much detail coming up. So, Yep, and not just hexes, just making the board go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that becomes a common theme for these kind of change the board games. A lot of them are changing the board by removing pieces of the board. Yeah, it turns out it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And then I think on the underside of each of the tiles, isn't there like a bad thing that happens when you remove it? Or is that a different game I'm thinking yeah, of? Yeah, that is true. They'll often spawn monsters. Sometimes it'll spawn boats. Sometimes it'll be like a whirlpool that eats all the nearby hexes. And I do love that in the middle of the island is the the big monster that, like, somebody could just race to free. Uh, and then everyone is sad. At the beginning of the game, it's trapped and can't go anywhere. This is one of my favorite of the changing board. Yeah, it's great as a family game because it's easy enough to have the idea come out. And it's also something that appeals to gamers because there's still, you know, a fair bit of strategy and stuff going on there. So it's uh, it's all good. So if you just skip ahead another year to 1983, a game by Jolly Rogers developed by Tom Jolly, of all people, is a game called Wiz War, where essentially you're taking on the role of different wizards and trying to, I guess, kill each other, if I remember correctly. The object's actually to either kill each other or collect two treasure chests from the other wizards, because, you know, theft is allowed. <laughs> no honor among wizards? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely none. The tiles are these little sort of labyrinthine things that you arrange in a setup depending on how many players there are, but they all sort of connect to each other in odd ways. There are, like, basically teleporters that go from one tile to another. In addition, among the spells that the wizards cast are ones that will move or rotate those tiles. And I literally just realized as I was looking at this that this was out in 1983. In 1980, there was an arcade game called Wizard of War, W-O-R. Oh, that game's great. I love that game. Well, yeah. The layout is kind of like this. I mean, it's a labyrinth, so it's not that exciting. I wonder if there was any sort of causal relationship. Somebody looked at that and said, hey, I bet I can do a neat board game of that. Hmm. Well, I never played the 1983 or any of the earlier copies of this. I was not introduced to Wizward until 2012, in which the eighth edition of the game was published. It's been around for a while. And, like, playing it in 2012 was kind of a surreal experience because they the base mechanics of the game were mostly the same, and it felt 
like a very archaic game. Just playing it, it's like you you get a bunch of different sets of cards, mix them up, and that's what your powers are. And it just felt like a, hey, let's go punch your friends in the face sort of game, which... Which is, yes, definitely what it is. Mike, sometimes you just want to go punch your friends in the face. I guess, like... I don't know, like playing it just left a really weird impression like I was playing a game out of time. (laughs) Or a game specifically out of the 80s. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the that version was from Fantasy Flight, so all the components are beautiful. And there were, of course, 87 decks of cards, because that's how Fantasy Flight rolls. Oh, yeah. But yeah, the game did not change all that much. Honestly, I think that was mostly a nostalgia purchase, you know, targeting the folks who had played or had remembered the old one. Yeah, totally. But when you play it in the 80s, there were so many different cards. You really didn't see games with massive decks of cards. When you got Wiz War and a few of the expansions, there was, you know, a couple hundred cards in that deck, which doesn't seem like anything now, but the capriciousness and wait, what the, there's a gelatinous cube now was a lot of fun. Again, 80s fun. Tons, tons of random things. Our next game goes back to the kids level of crazy and nostalgia and everything. And that's Key to the Kingdom, 1990 Waddington's designed by Paul Bennett. Very important, singular key. (laughs) Keys is a very different game. Key to the Kingdom is totally forgettable, except apparently wasn't forgotten. Not by you. Kids fantasy game. You basically wander around, you pick up treasures on a board. It's a roll and move with branching tracks. The trick is that the board is fold over. So you get this elaborate four-panel board, and when you land on whirlpools on the board, you end up folding part of the board over, forcing anyone who's on that segment of the board that just got covered to be shifted. But that's it. You move around, and you have that weird folding board with holes in it. I would have skipped this one, except the art is gorgeous. It's got plastic minis. It's got a fantasy theme. And it's highly regarded by people who apparently played it as kids. This is one of those that suddenly goes in the $100, $150 range on the collector's list. And people talk about it like, oh my god, this game is great. Which, yeah, okay, it's a roll and move. Wait, weren't you just defending roll and move? <laughs> yeah, but they didn't do anything special with the roll and move except for the shifting board. This is, again, one of those really cool concepts that I would love to see people make more of a game out of. That happened. Uh, did it, though? We'll see. You're not wrong about the <laughs> art style in this game. It's got that, like... Classic fantasy. Yeah. Light it, fantasy, yeah. Like, I'm trying to think of a good comparison, and... The side of a van? Yeah, yeah, it definitely <laughs> looks like it's got a wizard on a hilltop shooting out lightning. Some of that 80s airbrush d yep. look, yeah. And the 80s fantasy art. It looks great, and... There was just the beginning of a lot of fantasy games then, but none of them were quite that well produced because this is before you know Hero Quest and the uh, legendary games that we all know. Oh no, this is nineteen. This is nineteen ninety. So this is after. Oh, we've turned the corner here. Yeah, totally. If anyone knows someone who just completely worships this game, I'm curious to know what the draw is, except for the art. There was a thread on the Geek talking about how Restoration Games was looking at doing it. Oh I'm God. not sure how serious they were. <laughs> oh no! Expected to release Q3 2021. Oh. So we just a podcast that Restoration and Stronghold listen to to find their random ass games that they need to re-release. But we haven't even mentioned this yet. They're looking into the future. I mean, maybe. Maybe they're in our wow. spreadsheet and they just look and they're like, "Hey, that could be. That could be. That's what we get for inviting Rob Davio on the show." <laughs>
I heard that they were also looking to just lock to Dinosauria, which is much more important. Please. Oh, please. <laughs> that I will back. <laughs> yeah. Dinosaurs. Is this going to be the start of a new theme on Kickstarter? Have we finally moved past zombies to dinosaurs? <laughs> Zombie dinosaurs. That'll I hope be the so. Next. Yeah, it's time to move on. And speaking of time to move on... <laughs> yeah, let's move forward in time 12 years and move backwards in time 20 years in terms of gameplay and move on to Vampire Hunter. <laughs> so Vampire Hunter was released by Milton Bradley, designed by who knows, because they didn't credit the person. Maybe they didn't want their name associated it with it. I think this was actually by Milton Bradley. <laughs> I actually think that this is Craig Van Ness and Rob Davio. I think that they were involved in this. It might have been one or the other, but it's that time period. So at least they were, they had a hand in it. And I'd say like some of these other games, this is a gimmick in search of a game. Yes. The idea here is the players are vampire hunters, hence the name, searching to kill the vampire Dracus before he can escape on his boat. Because vampires love running water. Yeah, they love it. It's their favorite. The clever part of this game is there's this plastic tower in the middle of the board. You're encouraged to play the game in the dark, and this plastic tower will emit either a red or a blue light. And the state of the board, the board itself, will have different things on it depending on whether the red light or the blue light is active. Red light's daylight and blue light is night. And you're flipping over cards that will determine if you're moving in day or night. Unfortunately, (laughs) that's kind of where the cleverness disappears. Once you actually play the game, it's literally a roll and move where you roll a die to move. You will move a number of spaces. If you end your turn next to a piece of cardboard, you get to flip it over and see if it's a monster, which you could fight by rolling a die that says if you hit it or not. Or it'll be an item that you're looking to help defeat Dracus, be it a sword or, um, I think, a stake. And I think Mm -hmm. you start with a a piece of garlic. Now, if you lose your fight, you get to start over in the same section at the very beginning again, because everybody loves going back to start, because that's the best gameplay mechanic ever. But, like I said, the cool thing about the game is that the different colored lights will reveal different traps, or reveal monsters, or even the dice themselves will have different values, or a hit or a miss, depending on which light is active at that time. But from a gameplay perspective, not the most innovative. Yeah, there are definitely cool ideas. You know, some of the cardboard tokens that you flip over will just be an obstacle or nothing during the day. But at night, suddenly it's a monster. So there's some neat stuff going on. But the fact that you're rolling to move and a single die roll to fight, win or lose, is just disappointing. Yeah, no mitigation. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a candy land. When you actually play the physical copy, which you didn't, if you play it in the dark, the effect is striking. Literally, the entire board just changes appearance when you flip from day to night. And that carries the game a lot. And that's the only thing that carries the game. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a super clever gimmick. I, I love the idea. I just I wish there was a game wrapped around it. I feel like someone could do better with that. It's fascinating because it feels like it should have been made a lot sooner than it actually was. Yeah. Because, like, this feels like it would have been made in the 1970s and shipped with, like, the red-tinted filmed glasses that came with, like, (laughs) 3D movies or comic books at the time. That's the vibe that I get. Like, somebody took a pair of those old glasses and was like, I think we could do something with this. Oh, yeah, totally. So, in 2003, Mayfair Games produced a tiny little bundle of hate. <laughs> this game was created by Gunter Cornett and Alvedis Jack Leunis. Nailed it. I'm so sorry to both those designers. But that's, uh, hey, that's my fish. 
And this is, like I said, a game of sheer unbridled hatred wrapped in the most adorable theme ever. You get to play as penguins picking up fish off of a ice floe that is melting under your feet. Once you set up all the penguins and randomized hexagons, you move one of your, I think it's three or four penguins. penguins in a straight line as far as you would like. And then you pick up the tile that you left, which will have some number of fish on it that you keep secret, and leaves behind a hole in the board that penguins cannot cross. So you're going to continue this process until there are just no more moves to be made, at which point you flip over and count up how many fish you've got, and the person with the most is the winner. Very simple game, but you want to talk about a game that will ruin some friendships. <laughs> this one right here. I don't know if anybody takes it that seriously, but I uh, originally got this because my ex-wife was a big Penguin fan. And, you know, I thought, oh, this would be a cute game. And then we broke it out and played it. And like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is mean. You know, you just kind of isolate people off on their own little islands and they sort of limp along a square at a time until the whole thing falls into the ocean. <laughs> it's quick and it's simple, but it, it's a neat, mean little game. This is really like the Bloodbath podcast. I mean, <laughs> it really there are is. not nice games in this. You know what's really funny about this, though, is that this is in 2003, and I think is the first game in a long line of themes of just melting ice caps. Yeah, that's true. There have been a whole series of games along those lines. And we'll, we'll see that again. Gameplay-wise, this feels like a lighter version of Survive Escape from Atlantis to me. I mean, it has... I think a little bit more direct competition than Survive did. But it, I mean, we didn't really talk about it during Escape to Atlantis, but it also has just a screw your neighbor kind of feel to it. Yeah, but this game has a lot more, almost infinitely more area control than Survive has. The core mechanic, the thing you're trying to accomplish during the game, is very different, right? Like, this is very much like, hey, how do you control the most territory and therefore pick up the most fish? Mm -hmm. Where Survive is, how do you get away from the location? Like, how do you manipulate yourself to get from point A to point B? Right, where this one is like literally like, hey, how do I carve out a chunk of the ice that has a bunch of fish that no one else can get to mm -hmm. and win all the points, right? Or how do I yeah. stop my opponent from doing that same thing? The next one we had on our list is certainly the first one that came to mind for me when we talked about games with a changing board, and that is 2004's Dungeon Twister from Edge Entertainment, designed by Christoph Berlinger. The name suggests that it has something to do with Twister, but it does not. It is basically a game where you have a bunch of hero types who are going into a dungeon. Each player has a team of adventurers, and, you know, there are all sorts of different adventures with different powers as far as movement abilities and combat and that sort of thing. And you're moving into a sort of tile-based dungeon. The objective is to get to five points. You can do that by getting uh, one of your characters out on the opposite side of the board, i.e. past all of your opponent's models, or killing opponent adventurers, collecting treasure, that sort of thing. What makes it interesting is that the tiles, I think in the, the base 2 on 2 game, it's like a 3 by 2 setup. The tiles are in colored pairs. And in addition to all the little walls and corridors and portcullises and treasure chests, there's sort of a, a big capstan pinwheel kind of thing on each of the tiles. And when you stand on that space, you can spend an action to either rotate that tile 90 degrees or rotate the matching other tile of the same color 90 degrees. So there's a lot of cutting off passageways and, oh, your opponent's wizard is really weak, but he's safe because he's off in this dead end. Except if I rotate this, now my barbarian can charge him, that kind of thing. 
So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of different options you can do. There are a ton of expansions for it. There's a three to four player expansion. There's additional characters and boards and cards and that kind of thing. But basically, it's just more of the same stuff. So if you like the idea of bringing a party of adventurers in a dungeon crawl, fighting another party of adventurers, and messing with the board at the same time, this is your game. Yeah, this one also had, very similar to Wiz War, just a, hey, what if we just punch each other in the face <laughs> feel to it. But I got to tell you, when, when you first taught me how to play this game, it kind of broke my brain. <laughs> I just could not wrap my head around the effects of rotating these tiles to any sort of strategic degree. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where you've got all of your classic dungeon crawl fighting tactical considerations on top of a spatial arrangement game. So if you're not good at one or the other of those, uh, this game will probably hurt you in some deeply personal way. I get a kick out of it, especially when you get like three or four players going involved and it just becomes this incredibly random bloodbath. It's not an all-time classic by any means, but it's fun. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed playing it. And it's got a pretty cool aesthetic going for it. Like, I really dug all of the artwork that they had for the game. And it looks nice. Yeah, it's very brightly colored, but not in a sort of cartoony way. I, I generally quite like it. Yeah, and it's Christophe Boulanger. All the games he does are just interesting. Oh, he was the guy that did Archipelago, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I knew I knew that name. And um, Earth Reborn, which is, oh my God, complex. I know. I still own it. Same here. I don't get it, but I own it. All right. So the next one is a fascinating game that I first played at one of the local cons here, Dragon Con, uh, called The Downfall of Pompeii. Hey, Dragon Con is not a local con. Dragon Con is a national convention. Never heard of it. Definitely <sighs> is, but also is local. So this is true. Downfall of Pompeii was made in 2004 by Mego Games and was designed by Klaus Jurgen Rerde. We're very sorry. So sorry, but also nailed it. <laughs> This is a game about throwing people into a volcano. It's pretty great. I mean, everybody wins. I don't know what more there is to really say, except that. <laughs> hey, I sold me. <laughs> definitely has the two stages of games, similar to what we saw in Sinking of the Titanic. During the first phase of the game, you're placing out your meeples and you're playing like a area control game. And as you do, at some point, the volcano is going to begin erupting, at which point. You have to take all of the people that you've been playing out into this territory control game and get them out of dodge. And if you're not careful, they're going to end up in lava and be sacrificed to the volcano to appease the volcano gods. Well, I mean, if they're trapped in lava, they'll be studied hundreds of years in the future by archaeologists. It's a pretty It's a win-win, really. <laughs> I really dig this game. I don't get it to the table as much as I want to because it's kind of an older game and it kind of falls by the wayside as far as like, hey, what do we feel like playing today? But um, every time I do play it, I always really enjoy it. I think I played this once at like an Oasis many years ago. I don't have strong memories of it other than that the theme is pretty cool. The term is that you can direct to the lava flow and you pretty much get to choose where the lava goes, <laughs> unlike Survive, which is a little more random. And so Pompeii is actually even more vicious. Yes, the volcano is coming for you specifically. Oh, yeah. And it does a really good job of that 
transition period where you are trying to get out as many people as you can in the early game to score the points, but then the better you do there, the worse off you're going to be in the second half of the game. And I think it's a really clever balancing mechanism. And again, you get to throw people into this tiny three-dimensional <laughs> volcano. It's it's pretty great. It is oddly satisfying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's stop all this, like, giant, epic world destruction. Let's just get back to, like, a nice little chateau with some cheese. Let's all just enjoy some cheese. Chateau Roquefort, which was released in 2007 by Zoc Verlog, designed by Jens Peter Schilman and Bernard Weber. In Chateau Roquefort, you are a group of mice that are desperately trying to get some cheese on top of a very interesting little board. At the start of the game, there are a bunch of tiles on top of the board, kind of covering all the spaces. So you can't see any of the spaces on the board at the start of the game. One of the things you can do as your action is you can reveal one of the adjacent tiles to any of your mice to kind of see what's under that tile. You take the entire tile off and it gives you visibility into what's going on. The other thing you can do is you can move your mouse one space orthogonally to another location. And then the final thing you can do, which is where the meat of the game comes in, there's a couple of tiles that are sitting off the side of the board that are kind of part of the board logically but aren't currently integrated into the board and you can take one of those pieces and push them into the board right so the board has a grid and you can push this block into either side of that grid on any of the bokes and you push one full tile all the way through so this has some fun implications because the goal of the game is you're trying to maneuver so that two of your mouse at the same time are on the same cheese and then you get that cheese into your personal cheese collection and once you have four unique cheeses, you win. But there are three pitfalls. You know, the, the chateau is very old. It has some rather dangerous little bits in it. So as you push the grids around, you're also pushing around these pitfalls. And one of the most enjoyable parts of the game is when you look at your opponents like, oh, I can't let my opponent get that cheese. Let me go push this tile through. And a pit that no one knew was there moves onto the board and their mouse just falls through the board, right? So the board is on an elevated plastic grid with little cups underneath that the mice fall into, right? So when your mouse falls into the hole, it's gone. That mouse is donezo. You do not get him back this game. So you have a, a limited number of mice to kind of accomplish this goal of getting all of this cheese. Yeah, it's one of those that it's kind of like, hey, that's my fish in that regard. It looks like a, you know, cute kids game with lots of bright colors. The mice are brightly painted with big smiles and buck teeth. But it can get a little bit on the vicious side as you start figuring out where the pits are and how to move people around. It's a little complicated to set up because you've basically got a grid and then you've got the tiles on top of that and then you've got the roof on top of that. But it's a really clever setup mechanically and I find it to be fun. I've often recommended it to friends who are starting to get their kids into board games because it starts talking about action points and that sort of thing in a child-friendly game that I think works well for grown-ups, too. I think this was one of the first games I played that really used the actual box that the game came in as mm -hmm. a tool. I really dig how they elevate it like that. And then I think shortly after playing this is when I first played Cleopatra, which did something very similar. Mm-hmm. Another just cutthroat game that looks super adorable. <laughs> but it is a good game for, you know, the kind of 5 to 9 age range. It works really well. But it's not a game that is roll and move or brain dead simple, right? It's got some bite to it. Not a ton, but some. 
All right. The next one um, I want to talk about is one that I discovered probably from Frank um, a few years back at, uh, I think, an Oasis of Fun and actually went ahead and bought the reprint when the designer did it when I was over at Essen some years back. Uh, it's called Setor Arepo Tenet Opera Rotas. Bless you. Um, yeah, it's basically the words from an old uh, medieval magic square. They're all sort of spell the same in both directions. Um, anyway, it was um, designed by Enrico Pesce and Federico Rinaldi, uh, published by Postscriptum and Scribobs. And this is a game, I mean, this is what you call a high concept game, because basically you are librarians in sort of this um, alternate library dimension with like stairways that move and slide around and you are taking books that are too dangerous for mankind to know about and um trying to get them back to their their correct locations oh i watched that episode of the magicians <laughs> each turn you have a handful of cards and you are basically moving and rotating the various paths over this enormous bottomless pit uh, and then you're moving your monks there to try and get these lost books. You have cards that give you special moves you know like like super moves that you could do once per game and basically if you recover all the books of your color you win. Um, there's also um, included in the version I have there's an expansion called Malleus Maleficarum where there is sort of an evil black monk uh, that you can send after other players and, and curse them uh, and make their uh, make their lives considerably more miserable. Um, you can also voluntarily get a curse to get a, a boon from the ghost, which are super powerful cards, but it will, you know, the curse also makes life difficult. Um, it's very, the, the remake in particular is very pretty. Um, you know, the, the board components are very nice. There's a lot of sort of Tetrisy style movement of the grid, the, the bridges and stuff around. They're in different colors. So you can only move certain ones depending on certain cards. And, um, it's just, uh, it's neat. It's thematic. Um, it's not particularly well known, but I kind of dig it just because I like the idea of walking around, uh, over a bottomless pit collecting ancient tomes. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, it's tactically really tricky. I mean, trying to figure out your move is hard. Uh, it's not one of the easy kind of movement planning games. Yeah, if it, you, you talk about, um, those of us who are, or those of you who have listened to the show for a while have heard us use the term time vortex when like there is no point in planning your turn before the person in front of you goes just because things can change so much. This is one of those. You'd be like, oh, well, I'm just going to walk across on the, oh, that's not there anymore. Okay. I guess I won't do that. This is a game full of time vortex, um, which can mean it's a little slow to play because you really can't start planning your turn until the start of your turn. Um, but it is fun and, uh, thinky. Yep. So our next game on the list of really obscure games that we kind of love that no one else has heard of, although I've heard of the previous game, it's a game called Deluge. Um, this is actually French for Flood, uh, published in 2010, 2010 by Guillaume Bessencon and uh, designed by Guillaume Bessencon and Le Jouet is the publisher. Uh, he only really designed a couple games that they self-published. These have a lot of uh, rocks. <laughs> I'm a kind of a sucker for games that include natural stones. In this case, both this game and the other game he designed, City, Cite, um, 
come with a bunch of dyed stones as tokens instead How do of what you would be normal stones? counters. I don't know. They're incredibly <laughs> vivid and you know heavily painted, but the the dye seems to be sunk in where it's not coming off. Huh. And yeah, I don't know how they're done. Um, but anyway, both games revolve around trading and kind of a city, you know, building up. This one's definitely a three X or four X game. Uh, if so, it reigns in a bit of, bit of the exploration. Uh, if you uh, looked at our three X four X example episode from way back, which you should certainly have done. Totally. Uh, in this one now, Basically, while you're expanding, the your people happily go off and breed like they do, and <sighs> you don't control that. If you accept that, if you put you know four guys on um, a space alone, there'll be six guys at the end of the turn. Your people, uh, and you need to keep them, you know, busy collecting resources, doing the thing, prep for war, and you know all that expansion. You attack each other. Um. The pro- one problem is that your people, well, if you don't keep them busy, they turn into revolutionaries, they're replaced by redstones, and they just start attacking you and everything else on the island and gradually begin to breed and spread. The second problem is that, well, it's called flood and the world is sinking. So the lowlands start to fill up, meaning you have to scramble people onto the islands, gradually start building ships to transport between the islands. And uh, meanwhile, you've got all the revolutionaries growing up and getting unhappy. And pretty much at some point, the entire remaining board turns red because no one can deal with it anymore. It's that it's the weird shifting of, you know, conquest, um, a typical Forex kind of conquest, you know, gather resources, build up, and then realizing you have way too many people and they're starting to just rip themselves apart and then having to move the survivors onto an island just to keep them from being taken over by this new player that's entered the game. The, the Red it's Menace. It's an odd, odd game. So it sounds like you kind of want to keep your people spread out as much as possible so you're not overdoing your population. Assuming that the other players just don't decide to rip you apart during the early sure. phase because they've, you know, <laughs> overpopulated and grown. And it's a weird kind of trying to figure out where to go on that curve is an incredibly delicate balance. So, yeah, it's got a thing over most of the 3X, 4X games for that. Okay. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. The board rocks. looks very unusual. <clears throat> the board looks very unusual. And the three-player and four-player boards look nothing alike, which is weird. And there are some slightly different rules between them. Huh. Yep. Yeah. Very, very odd-looking game. Oh, yeah. But surprisingly good and fairly short. I mean, it's a 90-minute game. That's, that is short for a 4X game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's my weird entry. That's one of your weird entries, Frank. We haven't done uh, the other one yet. Oh, right. Yeah. Give me a second. No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Okay. Wait your turn. <laughs> I, know you, I know you really want to do it, but... Please. Go ahead, Joe. Okay. So... Let's let's uh let's keep talking about water because it's a great mechanic in uh in in changing boards. Uh, let's talk about Forbidden Island, uh, released in 2010 by GameRight, designed by Matt Leacock. 
And in Forbidden Island, uh, it's a purely cooperative game. Um, and there's a whole series of them, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert. Are there any other games in the series? Uh, Forbidden, Forbidden Sky. sky. Yeah. Forbidden Sky, yes. I forgot about Forbidden The one sky. where the sky sinks. No one ever looks at <laughs> Ones where everyone is falling out of the sky. In all the Forbidden games, your island specifically, right? You're trying to get four treasures in Forbidden uh, Desert. You're trying to get some components to fix your airship to get out of the desert. Um, forbidden Sky. I don't. I don't actually know what you're trying to do in Forbidden Sky. I'm trying, trying to launch a rocket. Up, yeah, you're trying to hook up power to your rocket. Ah, uh, excellent. All of the Forbidden games follow a very similar. Um, script uh, for lack of a better word which is that on your turn you take some actions right do some things manipulate the boards in some way right in forbidden island right you can shore up spaces that have started to flood so you kind of move them back to an, a less flooded state um yeah, similarly in, in desert you kind of clear out the sand so you can kind of get at the the architectural structures that are beneath the sand before they get fully buried by the sandstorm and forbidden sky you i don't know attach more balloons to the various things that are flying i don't i've actually so uh you're you're really just, you know trying to stop the board from deteriorating right that's kind of the core concept of, of a couple of these games right um you take a couple actions to shore up the board, or you take a couple actions to kind of like get towards the specific goal of your game, uh, and then afterwards you you do bad things, right? So in Forbidden Island, right, you flood, you draw from this flood deck, and you tr you flood those spaces, which means you flip them over, and if they're already flipped over, you totally remove them, which then limits players from moving into that space, which can be very uh, effective in the game in to in totality. Um, same for Forbidden Desert, right? You you the sand kind of rises as storm storms, and you you kind of bury these locations that you need to use to to escape, right? To find all of your equipment, um, and you're kind of like slowly building towards the goal of having the components necessary to actually be able to either get the artifact or get the uh, ship part so you can use it to kind of get out of there. Um, it's a, those Both the games are purely cooperative, right? So you're, you all are working together to try to defeat the board. Um, and, you know, like many kind of like cooperative games, right? They have a, 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 an uptick in difficulty, right? The game is harder because you're all trying to work together. So the difficulty is presented by the game, not by the other players. I think I like these games are, are I dig these games they're they're very simple right like they they don't there's not a ton of rules right they they're very understandable right they work pretty well for not like super young kids but like you know kids in the early teens right and it's worth noting they are cooperative you are working together on this goal so you're not you're not fighting with each other to get these relics you're actually kind of it's a point you have to trade cards so they make sure that people have uh, all the what is it four cards you need to collect the relic on the relics um, yeah, yeah, it's tile. it's almost in that way, uh, slightly reminiscent of some what's going on pandemic. You need one yes. person to get all the ones of a certain suit to to get the thing. Um, the other thing I always like to say about these is that until uh, Mechs and Minions came out, this was Forbidden Island, at least, and Desert as well, from what I remember, was probably the best bang for your buck in terms of board game value. Because I think the the original Forbidden Island game was twenty bucks, came in a nice little tin with big sort of resin items for the artifacts. You know, nice cards, very well put together, um, and it's a, a good game. You know, it's a, it's an excellent co op family game. Um, I, I think this was also one of the 
early games that actually made it into like retail stores like oh, uh, yeah. Target mm-hmm. and Walmart. Yep, your Walmart, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of the start of like that second phase of or like third phase or whatever of like a uh, board game hitting the mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the re uh, they were part of the start of the of recent reemergence of board games into places like Target and Walmart and stuff. And I think part of Matt's design for this was to do like a lighter pandemic, something that could go into retail. So I mm-hmm. think that it was specifically designed for that kind of market. Yeah, so I'll buy that. It was on purpose. Yeah, like I I certainly I think of a lot of our games that we talk about, this is one that if I were to mention it to non-board game enthusiasts, they'd be like, oh yeah, I've played that game. Have you played Settlers? <laughs> is then usually where that conversation goes, but... Frank, tell us about your trippy roll and move. Yes. Oh yeah, this is... No, it's not a roll and move. So there. <laughs> oh, I thought it was. Okay. No, no rolling, no dice. Okay. So Nate Hayden's pretty much a one-guy shop. He designs, chooses, self-publishes under Blast City Games, um, and Emperor's of Eternal Evil, his other um, company for... Actually, Emperor's of Eternal Evil is a gift shop that sells death metal um, memorabilia, cassettes, and such. Um, the kind of games he designs... I mean, his first game we know is After Pablo, about um, cocaine smuggling. And, and, you know, it's another family uh, game. Picking up a theme here. <laughs> like oh, you do. totally. Uh, and then, you know, it goes on to uh, Cave Evil, a death metal-themed dungeon crawl skirmish game. Um, you know, he's taken side views into games like Freak Face and um, oh, the Carnival one. Set, uh, Freak Face is the Carnival one. Sea Evil... Um, and a, a whole bunch of um, very 70s grindhouse horror movie-themed games. <laughs> uh, that's really kind of based on Hills Have Eyes and that kind of revenge cannibalistic mutant games. That's the kind of games <laughs> Nate Hayden designs. Great. Definitely oh, more I, of an adult theme than most of the games we talk about. Yeah, no, oh, don't follow Chateau Rover yeah. with this <clears throat> one. Yeah, totally. Anyway, 2013, he gave us, I think, his best game, Mushroom Eaters. And this is, of course, appropriately about um, uh, being a member of a group of of aspiring shamans who are doing kind of their final um, with the, the great shaman to determine who, spirit becomes, quest. who becomes his, you know, his protege. And who will follow him? And basically, you sit down in the the hut, and I'll take a big stew of mushrooms and start drinking. And that's the premise of the game. Um, so, what really it is is a, a kind of a set collection game with a whole bunch of sliders. You've got your ego, how well you're keeping your composure. You're trying to pick up nuggets of wisdom from tokens and trying to keep all this in balance uh, on your turn. There's only one pawn and it's a big, long track. The, and basically you choose from playing a card, not dice, how far you move and you take whatever reward is on the space you land. And then the next person moves the pawn so many spaces from where you left it. And that's how the game goes. Some but spaces. Frank, how does the board change? 
<laughs> so basically it starts out, you see this image of the hut and a bonfire outside and a simple little loop of about 20 spaces. But when you hit this one space, you have to open out part of the board. And the board's this gigantic six-fold board, which you only see two of the sides that covers both sides of the six-fold board. And as you play, the board unfolds, refolds, um, paths will just open up. And the art goes from somewhat primitive and normal to I'm on mushrooms. Uh, and and the game comes with uh, 3D glasses, and there are some red-blue 3D elements in all the cards and board um, that especially gets more obvious in the weirder parts of the game. Huh. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll certainly put some links to uh, to pictures in the show notes. This one, we actually had to get Frank on a webcam to show us this board physically to sort of, at least for me, to understand how it worked. Uh, but it is certainly, um, not only is it is it a neat idea, but it's sort of thematically cool because it's like your consciousness is expanding, man, uh, as the board gets bigger and longer and weirder and trippier. Um, I have no idea if it's any good as a game, but I, I like it as a thought it's experiment. It's actually cute as a game. It's a little long and a little fluffy because it is multiply. It is mostly trying to balance your things. So it's, you know, you have a hand of cards, you pick what the next thing is. So the choices aren't that hard. I mean, so the choices are really easy. So it's a very light playing. Um, the designer does note that it is impossible to play it on mushrooms. <laughs> so it's not that light. <laughs> I can only can imagine I? the playtesting that went into that. <laughs> I can pretty much imagine the playtesting. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm hoping he does another, you know, reprint of it because he does reprint some of his stuff. But it's actually a good game, and the theme is amazing. I mean, the cards and everything, the art are very, very odd, very psychedelic. I mean, it it really reminds me of. Uh... Another game that you've mentioned on the podcast, Dungeon Degenerates, whereas like Dungeon oh, Degenerates yeah. has more of that like 1990s Pogs theme. This is, I mean, I think with the red blue that, elements, not a lot okay. more trippy. <laughs> yeah. The one thing about Nate Hayden's games, all of his games are remarkably well themed. So they, I mean, the mechanics and everything are right for that kind of thing. I mean, his his Hills Have Eyes games is just perfect for that kind of thing. Brian, I have a very specific reference point for that art. Okay, I'm a child of my, my time. Uh huh. Yeah. <sighs> Kids today. <laughs> Kids today, and their destructible terrain, and their their video game based board games. Hmm. That's their app integrations. Yeah. I mean, speaking of which, let's talk about a, a video game that has expanded way beyond anything that it ever should have been. Rampage. Um, I mean, so just the... So you're back- saying the movie was a bad idea? Oh, just saying, <laughs> it was is- a Dwayne The Rock Johnson vehicle and everyone <laughs> loved it. It was better than it had any right to be. That's yeah, pretty much. true. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly because Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You're mm-hmm. not wrong. Um, but like, so 
For those of you that don't know, Rampage is a game that originally came out for the Nintendo, the original Nintendo Entertainment System, where you just, you're a kaiju punching buildings, getting the And eating people. It was an arcade game. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it predated the NES. It is really good. It is a really good classic game. So, obviously, they needed to take that out and put it into other forms. So, they came out with the, the movie, which is weird. But also good. And of course, board games. So this board game actually has nothing to do with the license and thus is part of its uh, storied history and its renaming into Terror in Maple City. This was originally made in 2013 by Repos Productions, who did not own the the rights to the Rampage franchise, (laughs) uh, and was uh, designed by Anton Bauza and Ludwig Malbert. Both of whom are pretty much certifiably crazy. Uh, Antoine Bowser did ghost stories, but he also did Trotofont, the game about, well, just Google it. <laughs> yeah, that's the one with the elephant tusk. Or yeah, trunk the elephant's thing. trunk thing, yeah. And, yeah, I don't I don't think you can play that game in, in, uh, in the time of COVID. <laughs> and like, so Terror and Meeple City, each player is controlling a kaiju in which they're trying to destroy the city and collect meeples to eat. Or teeth, or something. It's it's been a minute since I played this, um, but I really enjoy how interactive this game is because, in order to destroy the city, you are having to do physical things to the board. Like you've got a skyscraper in front of you. Which, by the way, when you set up the game, you are balancing the layers of the buildings on top of the meeples' heads, which is a weird way to construct buildings, but okay. Yeah. Um, perfectly good it. for Chicago and you know what happened. <laughs> <in the office>. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Allegedly. <laughs> but in order to knock them down, like you might have to like physically blow on the tower as hard as you can to try and knock it down. And then you collect any meeples that you knock off. Like it is just a stupid fun game. Good luck finding it. That's all I really have to say about that. That's fair. Good luck. Giant, giant monsters. You know, I I think it is by far one of the best kaiju themed board games. Well, there's not a lot of competition there, Mike. There's there King, really there's King of New York and King of Tokyo. I think win. Uh, I yeah, mean, they're like the only other ones. Definitely Yahtzee. Yeah. <laughs> Yahtzee with punching, Mike. You should appreciate that. <laughs> Yahtzee with punching. Right, it's I the mean, best kind of Yahtzee. Weeble. <laughs> Well, let's keep the uh, yeah, let's keep the destruction theme rolling here. <laughs> let's talk about a uh, 2015's game, Blood Rage, from Simon and designed by Eric Lang. Um, we've already talked about this one back in our drafting games uh, episode, but there is a, an element of the the board changing over time, right? So, real real uh, quickly, you're basically playing different tribes of of Vikings uh, or clans of Vikings, I think specifically, and the idea is you're you're invading territory with your Viking warriors and you're pillaging the, those territories to get some form of buff. You know, sometimes it's just worth victory points. Sometimes it'll increase your stats. Um, but the idea is you're you're you know trying to increase uh, your stats to earn enough glory to you know be the the most badass uh, <laughs> Vikings around. And at the end of every round, 
one of those territories is going to get Ragnarokt. It's going to get destroyed in the end times. And since you are some like heavy metal badass Vikings, you want to put as many of your guys in that territory that's going to get obliterated so that they can die in the most glorious death possible and earn you a bunch of victory points. So each age, which there's three of them, each age, um, and you'll start the age by learning which of those territories is going to get obliterated. And then you're going to try and place as many of your, your guys in there before the end of the, the round so that when it does get annihilated, all those guys go to Valhalla and you get victory points for each one of them. Um, there is a little bit of manipulation about where that, that end um where that which territory is going to be destroyed with one of the monsters, uh, Fenrir specifically. Um, but yeah, it's mostly just uh, the, the field keeps getting smaller and smaller. The places that you can pillage and fight over become less and less. So it kind of forces you towards this end game where you're just going to be slamming all of these Viking clans together, um, fighting over diminishing territory, or you know, fighting over who can get into the territory that's about to get obliterated. I, I love that you're trying to get as many of your guys killed as possible. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's an interesting thematic choice, but yes, it's it's funny when you watch people getting upset. It's like, oh, they filled the area. I can't get killed now. <laughs> Glorious and death. I, and I still love that you can have your boat sent to Valhalla. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's one that uh, seems to have come up a lot. Blood Range has a lot of a lot of things going on, um, and I still haven't played it, but I've heard oh, good wow, things really? about it. Oh wow, really? Yeah. yeah. You definitely need to give that a shot. I mean, you've got Rising Sun after that and Ankh whenever that releases. Well, I actually own Rising Sun, so I really like I'm more that likely game. to play that one. Which is funny because I don't. I know we've played Blood Riot Rage together, Jason. I don't think we've done Rising Suns though, because I think both of those games play at better at a specific player count, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Like uh, Rising Sun, probably just because like there's a lot going on in Rising Sun, and you definitely want to have a uh, if you an, an, an even number of players so you can have um, even alliances, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, I wouldn't say there's necessarily. It's not. It's not one of those games that suffers badly if you don't have a specific number of players. For some reason, I was thinking the Blood Rage played better at four player. I would say it plays better at four than five, but it's sure. still certainly doable at five. Okay. So, Mike, you you fought hard to get this next one included. Yeah, so kind of wrapping up the uh, polar ice cap and hex removal bund bundle that we've been talking about <laughs> since Survive Escape from Atlantis is, uh, I think, the newest game in that same kind of vein, which is called uh, Rescue Polar Bears, which is since come out with an expansion called Data and Temperature, which I have not no, actually no, The played. full name of the game is actually Rescue Polar Bears Data and Temperature. Oh, is it really? It's all one game. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like, it, this is such... Okay, so this is made by Box Lighting and 2 Plus Games, and designed by Jog Kung and uh, Hung Yi Ming. Again, I apologize. Um, but this is... Um, is such a, a weird game because it does play a lot like Survive or Hey, That's My Fish, except you're trying to rescue polar bears. This game wins for being the cutest of every game that we've talked about, if for no other reason than the adorable polar bear meeples. It comes with Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and the cute little baby bears. So have they done the product placement? Are they all carrying a bottle of Coca-Cola? Interestingly not, because this is... Again, a, a very oddly developed game, but you are cooperatively working together to rescue as many of these bears as you can. 
Each player is in control of a research vessel that has unique powers and capabilities. And as you play, you're taking both your actions to help the bears and then the bad guy action to harm the bears. And the bad guy in this case just being global climate change. Yep, it's pretty much warming and watching the ice flows melt. Mm -hmm. And the bears breed because yes. they do that and you wish they'd stop it. <laughs> <laughs> like, which, which sounds wrong, but at least in the context of the game, I, no, we don't need to rescue more of you. Yeah, Stop like <laughs> some of the actions are to manipulate where the bears are on the ice flows. And if you've got a mama bear and a papa bear together, you got to get a baby bear. I like the idea that one of the actions your player is taking in real life is just like taking a broom and just pushing <laughs> one of the bears away. Like, hey, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> just for your own good. Yeah, it, it's pretty great. Yeah. Again, this game is just adorable for how grim and awful and really difficult it is. Yeah, it is surprisingly difficult. And the production's really nice. Your boats are kind of like little hovercrafty, you know, environmental boats. They're little 3D slot together boats. The the bears and are resin quality too. And really nice. And the game is actually good. I mean, it's a tactical you get four actions and try to do stuff and I will say it felt a little bit more like playing pandemic. It occupied that same kind of brain space that pandemic occupies. It really is good. Those those cardboard boats are actually pretty sexy. They're they're great. Huh. Do you own this, Mike? Sadly, I do not. It's actually really hard to find. It's an Asian company producing it, and yeah, you don't get a lot of copies over here. I do have a copy, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Why did that feel more like you're rubbing it in than anything? <laughs> because he was. Because uh -huh. yeah, he that, was. That pretty much was, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Frank, do you want to take us home? We'll come full circle with another weird, inexplicable, gimmicky game that you have and no one else seems to know about. So this one's actually pretty easy to get. Uh, 2018 Haba, designed by Kai Hofferkamp. It's called Luxantis. This is interesting because it's an electronic game. It's not app-driven. It doesn't make noise. I mean, it's one of those kids' games. Haba, obviously, is a German company that does kids' games in yellow boxes, and generally good kids' games. Mm -hmm. They're still kind of skew young, but there's enough thought in their games that adults can play them and not hate life. In particular, Luxantis has a gigantic grid of LEDs that can basically turn red or blue. And by gigantic grid, I mean it's like 21 by 21. Yeah, and it's like there is sort of a map around it, but I don't think there's any actual meaningful terrain. There are some walls oh, okay. that you're not allowed to move across. Also scattered around this little world on the little map are a bunch of mystical items that are used to fight monsters. So you've also got a group of four monsters that are marching on the castle, which is presumably in the center of the board. On your turn, you can move your piece up to five spaces. Then you roll the die, and the die determines all. One of the results is cause a monster to move forward, which is bad. And the others involve basically causing the lights to show up. Whenever you push the black button, it'll randomize the board so that some spaces are safe, marked with a blue light. Some spaces are dangerous, marked with a red light. And anytime that you're forced to look at dangerous or good spaces, you 
press the appropriate blue or red button, and it'll light up everything that you probably tried to remember over this 21 by 21 grid in the previous terms, the last time it showed you the pattern. Anyone sitting on a red space goes back to the castle start. Anyone on a blue space gets an extra move. Hmm. So even though 50 years have passed, <laughs> we're still sending people back to start. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, in this case, sometimes it's faster to get back to the center uh, to get to start. But your object is actually to make it to all the treasures. Anytime you land on a treasure, you get to put a token on the monsters themselves are marked with one to four of the same treasure spots. And basically, when you land on a treasure, you get to mark off the monster spots on the <laughs> monster cards. Any monsters completely filled just kind of goes away and you take it out. So is this cooperative? Cooperative, yes. And it's mostly a memory game, obviously, where you're trying to remember the pattern. The trick here is that you can't remember the board pattern, which is too much. Yeah, it seems like you need to focus on, here's the area I'm going to try and go to. Mm -hmm. so exactly. I remember this little section of it. Right. Remember. Yeah. With the big downside that if you roll the black symbol on the die, mm -hmm. it'll just re-randomize the board again. <laughs> and takes the media effect. <laughs> Great. Ouch. But it's stunning when you actually look at the game because there's this you know, massive grid of uh, blue and red LEDs. And it's cool because the playing pieces, if I recall correctly, are clear. Correct. So you can see the lights easily from underneath them, which it seems like an obvious thing to say, but it's it's a really nice touch. But some people would have screwed that up. Yeah, no. mm -hmm. yeah I was kind of surprised to see Haba go electronic. I don't know if they've done any other electronic games. Yeah, it's not really their cup of tea. Like, I've seen a couple of Haba games that are more gimmicky like that, but usually they play it pretty safe as far as, like, oh, game Oh, games are often gimmicky. I mean, that's just a thing. Yeah. But they're usually really solid gimmicks. Right. Well, one of my favorites from them is their Animals Upon Animals game, which is just animal stacking. All of their games definitely have that feel of... They're designed with kids in mind. And mm -hmm. so, oh, like, yeah, just totally. as a teacher, something like Animal Upon Animal, where it's dexterity, like, manipulation of objects is definitely the skill that is coming across there. But it hides that under a veneer of, like, hey, this is a really fun game. This one, it's definitely, like, memory development and has this really cool theme that, like, a kid's not going to be like, oh, well, this is just memory the card game. Yes, this is boring grown-up stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got a nice fantasy theme. There's also no numbers. You're pretty much matching pictures on the monster cards, too, as well as a bit of hunting to identify those symbols. I mean, you have to learn to count to five to know your five movement. Oh, outrageous. Yeah, I mean, it's a mm -hmm. very simple, like, kids game. But I do like the design of the game. The board looks so dense. Like, just, like, looking at oh, it, yeah. like, man... <laughs> Like, when I first looked at it, I was like, man, it almost feels like it's a game from a bygone era because the board is so dense. You understand why it needs to be, but, like, like it's just, like, packed. Like, you don't normally see games nowadays that are, like, just, like, packed. Yeah, true. And, yeah, it's a long way to get across the board. About how long does it take to play? It's, like, 20, 30 minutes. Oh, that's fine. I mean, that's kid length. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are people's favorites from the ones that we've uh, talked about now? I'm going to pick at random and start with Frank. Um, how could it not be mushroom eaters? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make any comments on that, Jason. <laughs> I've said this is one of my favorites before, but Blood Rage, I mean, yeah, there's not that much board changing in it, but I really like how it comes together with the theme of like, hey, this is the end of the world and it's escalating. And, you know, hey, you get a bonus for getting obliterated. Who doesn't like that? <laughs> <laughs> I should be really good at that then. <laughs> Mike, you have any favorites from in here? I said it earlier in the episode, but I really 
think that survive is just, it's the one that started that kind of decreasing play space and it did it so well that for being a 30 year old game, it still plays really well. I think that would be my go-to. Seems fair. I really dig the Forbidden Island Desert games. They had a really nice theme, right? They play really easily. They're really memorable because the components are so nice. Even now, so you say Forbidden Island, I'm like, yeah, man, that game had really great components, right? Like, it does a really good job of putting itself forward. And, like, there's an obvious reason that that's the kind of game you would buy to Target and feel really good about the purchase, right, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it's a good, solid game. Yeah, but it's also short. I mean, it's pretty much reduced to as few tiles as you possibly mm-hmm. could to still have a game. So it's really short, really dramatic, great arc in the game. In some ways, I think it might be a better game than Pandemic in terms of its For arc. For many and how audiences, long... yeah. 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 You know, when I think about this list, this list has a lot of kid games and a lot of unusual games. And I'm like, you know, that's the one that's like, I could bring that home and play with my parents, right? And they'd totally get mm-hmm. it and they'd enjoy it. it kind of makes sense. It's like internally consistent and straightforward in, in a lot of useful ways. Yeah, absolutely. I do really like that series. I enjoy Dungeon Twister a lot, but I'm actually going to go with Chateau Roquefort just because (laughs) it is simultaneously so cool to look at and so clever for being so simple and does nifty stuff with the board. I just get a kick out of that game every time. All right. Well, I think that is our show. So thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, if there are any good examples of this that we've missed or you have opinions about how we're wrong or you have ideas about what we should do in future episodes... Let us know. Reviews on iTunes are always great. You can leave messages on our website, ascentofboardgames.com. You can visit our Facebook page, all the usual social media stuff. And until next time, everybody stay safe, try and get some games played, hydrate, and we will talk to you next month. Bye, everybody. Have fun. See Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Well, that's all right. I'm probably going to spend some money today. (laughs) Just like every day. My job here is done.